Welcome to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Welcome to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack, and today our guest is Will Matheson. And in 2017, he and his brother Evan chose to start Matheson Capital instead of following the traditional corporate path after completing their master's in real estate development at Columbia University. And despite limited experience and resources, they were able to acquire an 800K duplex in Los Angeles by January of 2018. And over five years, they focused on smaller properties, completing a dozen acquisitions worth over $100 million with the goal of acquiring $1 billion of real estate by 2027. So, Will, thank you so much for being here today. Welcome. And how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. So, Will, can you share a little bit more about your background and how you got started with real estate? So my background, I'm originally from the Southeast. I have a twin brother, Evan, and he's my partner at Matheson Capital. And really, I mean, real estate was my first job out of college. Um, I was a broker for Marcus and Millichap. So was he. We were working in the Carolinas doing a lot of net lease retail sales, a little bit of multifamily and a little bit of student housing. And it was a really great business, learned a lot, learned a lot of skills. But we really said, you know, we want to be on the owner side of things, you know, as opposed to brokerage where, you know, you find a deal, you sell it, and then you've got to find the next one. Like we want to be owners. We want to we we looked at it as building a business as opposed to performing service. So we left brokerage. As you mentioned, we went to Columbia University's master's in real estate development program. I think it's a great program. And coming out of that, we said, well, we could either try to climb the corporate ladder for 10, 15, 20 years, and then try to launch our own company, or we can dive in head first, start out, buy some small deals and try to grow from there. So that's what, that's what we opted to do, buying our first deal and, January of 2018. Uh, we didn't actually graduate the program until May of that year. So we were still students when we bought our first property. So can you share a little bit more about the details of how you guys acquired that first uh, property, especially it being in Los Angeles? Yeah. So the first two acquisitions we did, they were both in Los Angeles. And we got into them because of a classmate of ours, Mitch Lindsay. He's from Los Angeles originally. And he had found these this property, very big believer in it, thought the market, uh, rents were below market. He thought we could, uh, I mean, really just buy the property. And if there were no tenants in it when we bought it, it would be worth more than if the tenants were in it. I guess that's because of Los Angeles rent control laws. Um, it's an interesting market out there. But yeah, that's what we did. We bought it for, he brought it to our attention. We had previously put a hard money loan on some property back when we were brokers in North Carolina. So we knew we could raise the money for it. So we worked with him. We raised the $800,000 to buy it. And we sold it two months later for, I want to say $985,000. Made a nice, nice small profit uh, in like two months. Then we bought another deal with him back in uh, May of 2018. We ended up holding that for about 19 months. That was a six-unit deal. So then that first property that you purchased, did you guys end up putting a tenant in there or did you sell it uh, empty as it is? Sold it empty. Like I said, Los Angeles is a weird market. Um, Sometimes the properties are worth more empty than they are occupied. Don't ask me why. 
So then for that property, um, how were you able to acquire it? And because Los Angeles is a competitive market to begin with. So what kind of set you guys apart in order to be able to acquire that first property? Was it off market or um, what did you do in order to set yourselves apart? It was an expired listing. That was the weirdest thing. I mean, it had it had been listed for sale. Nobody had bought it. It expired. I think we even bought it at roughly the same price. So again, it was just it was a weird it was a weird time to be in the market. It was 2017. I guess they had been starting to raise interest rates around that time. So the market is a little chillier. We forget that because everything picked up so much during 2020. But yeah, it was an expired listing, so we weren't even competing necessarily. So then, did you? do any renovations to that property during those two months times or did you just hold on to it and then put it back on the market i mean we literally the seller of it delivered it vacant and we turned around and worked with a broker and said hey look property is worth more than we paid for it go ahead and sell it i mean just based on the contract timeline we put it under contract to sell fairly quickly must have been within the first month we owned it because it still took another month for the contract to go through and then what about the second property? How are you able to find that second property? And uh, was it with the same investors that had come on to the first one? It was more or less the same group that did the first one. That one, I believe, was a listed property. We actually had to put some work into that one. Um, did a, to the studs renovations on a lot of those units. We bought it for one point four. We probably invested over $200,000 into the property we were actually, we bought it in May of 2018. We were actually in a pretty good position to sell it after we had pretty much finished renovations in February, March of 2019. However, it was in Inglewood that implemented emergency rolling 45-day rent control. Killed the market out there. Investment sales uh, really slowed to a crawl. We ended up selling it in October of 2019 for about 10% less than we could have sold it in March just because the market had been pretty damaged by that. But um, so it lasted a bit longer, but that was more of a traditional, you buy, you renovate, you increase the value of the property and you sell. And was this with the same partner as the first, uh, the first acquisition? It was the same group. Yeah. That was our last deal in uh, California. And after that deal, we really decided we're going to focus our attention on the Carolinas. It's where I live, it's where we're originally from. So ever since then, we've completed 13 acquisitions in the Carolinas. So how did you start to build up your portfolio in the Carolinas, moving from LA, having those two out over there, and then coming into the Carolinas? Yeah, one of our big things when we were buying properties is we thought it was very important to start small. That first acquisition, that two unit, we bought that when we were only 25 years old. So we had belief, and I think rightly so, that we're not going to raise millions of dollars at that age. Um, there's someone more experienced out there. There's someone who's been doing it longer. So no one's going to hand us 10 million of equity and say, yeah, let me invest with you guys for the next five years. Our outlook with all these early investments was we're going to buy and we're going to do very, we're going to do heavy value add and we're going to do short term hold periods. So, like I said, with the first two units, we owned it for two months. With the six units in LA, we owned it for 18 or so months. And when we started buying in Carolinas, I mean, we were continuing that same approach. We were doing a $915,000 six unit acquisition or a $1.13 million 15 unit acquisition or 
things along those lines, all of which had a basic business plan of two years or less on the hold, and we're going to sell it. We're going to deliver returns to investors. Uh, they'll be happy, nice, strong IRRs, and that'll help us grow our ability to raise money on the next deal, and it'll allow us to buy bigger and bigger and bigger properties. So then for those first couple of deals, were they conventional loans or what kind of financing were you able to do on that? Or was it primarily just raising capital from external investors? So the Los Angeles deals were kind of a hybrid approach. We weren't using bank lending. We were kind of using a private structure where first money out, like it it wasn't recorded loans or anything, but it was a structure where the first money out got some preferential treatment. And then you know, 20% of the money was treated as equity. It was kind of a security thing. When we started buying in the Carolinas, we were using more traditional bank debt. Um, We were using more traditional bank debt, not private mortgages or anything like that. So for those properties there, was it just you and your brother or were you also with um, other partners as well? We'd always been raising money from investors. Um, The Carolinas deals, we were all working with investors on those. For those deals there, you said you mentioned it was like a typically a two-year hold for it, and you were renovating the properties. Were they uh, renovating properties and then turning it around? Uh, What was kind of like the business plan that you guys were going into these properties? It was pretty much always going to be some form of value add. That way we could, you know, if there's no value add component, it's kind of hard to get in and out in under two years and really try to drive those returns. So we would you know, find a property where we thought the rents were under market or they still had original 1970s interiors put in 10 or so thousand dollars or five thousand dollars, depending on the state of the property, raise the rents and sell it. I mean, typical, typical real estate syndication business plan for a lot of those. And then as you're trying to grow the business, you know, how did you continue to find the deal flow, continue to build up the capital with the investors and then operate the properties? So a big part of that all comes back to focusing on smaller assets and shorter hold periods. And the reason I say that is, you know, we weren't doing 1031 exchanges, but by having the shorter hold periods of under two years, if I bought a property in 2019, sold it at the beginning of 2021, I could go back to those same investors who are now happy. We've delivered results for them. You know, they'll tell their friends that'll help us grow word of mouth, et cetera, et cetera. And we could essentially raise the same money from them over again to do the next project. So, you know, again, we had a series of acquisitions in 2000. I want to say in our 2019, our 2020 acquisitions, the longest we ended up holding one of them was 25 months, 27 months, something like that. So we're almost recycling the same capital. And every time we sell a deal, our investors are happy. They're introducing us to new investors. And that was big in allowing us to grow our investor base. As far as our ability to find new deals, again, I I emphasize uh, the fact that we started small was incredibly helpful for that. If we had gone out there into Charlotte or Charleston or pick a market here in the Carolinas and said, we're only chasing $20 million deals, we would have been at a very big disadvantage because all the brokers who sell $20 million deals know all the buyers and the owners of similar properties. So we'd have to overpay, presumably, to get that. But by starting small with these one and a half, $3 million, $2 million deals, we weren't 
necessarily competing with the most sophisticated end of the market, but we were also building a track record and proving to brokers that we closed properties. So when we decided to move up to a $5 million or $7 million or $10 million acquisition, they could see a track record of six, seven, eight, nine acquisitions that we had completed, gradually scaling up and up to these levels. So how has the market been for you guys now in today's market? And what are some of the challenges you're facing as you continue to grow and build out the business? So the market's been honestly very favorable to us in large part because we've not we're typically a, a fixed rate debt borrower so we didn't have a floating rate debt exposure on anything where we're the lead sponsor and we sold the majority of our portfolio in q4 of 21 and q1 of 22 so we pretty much got out right around the peak ever since then we've been redeploying capital so the way that we've been most impacted has been simply put there haven't been as many opportunities to look at. But on the other side of things, we've returned a lot of capital to investors. We gave them a good return. They're pretty happy. So when we do find opportunities, they're fairly eager to get back in. So for the people who are trying to get into real estate in today's market, you know, what are some of the challenges that you see that they face in order to break in into the real estate market investing? From an investing standpoint, one of the hardest things right now is going to be that there are the opportunities are scarce. It's not that, you know, I mean, you can see this in the amount of transactions that are taking place. The more transactions that are taking place, the more opportunities there are to invest. And with so few properties selling, that's just fewer chances to invest. Now, the good news is, unfortunately, a lot of people who invested in 2021 with some flooding rate debt, they're going to be in trouble. And we're seeing a lot of opportunities where properties are selling for less than they sold for today than they sold for in 2021. So the good news about investing today is it's hard to find the opportunities, but when you do find them, you can typically get a better investment basis than you could have even a couple of years ago. And so based off of your investor base now, is there still an appetite for investing in real estate or are people kind of holding back a little bit just because of the volatility of the market and where... Um, where people think real estate might be headed. So our outlook, well, we have, well, let me qualify. We've, we've done two closings this year and we're actively working on another acquisition right now. So our investors, again, probably because we sold out in, at the peak, they're very active and they're looking to invest more. Our general outlook can be essentially summarized as the time you get you get burned when the market is hot, and nobody would call today's market hot. There's very little supply, but there are very few buyers out there. Everyone, all the groups that were doing the bulk of the buying in 2020, 2021, a lot of them are on the sidelines right now, and they're in full asset management mode. Because if you did all that buying back then, you probably had to use some floating rate bridge loans, and that's getting you in trouble right now. So there's not the same amount of even though supply is down, deal to buy, demand is down as well. And financing is very difficult. If financing were easier, you'd see more buyers trying to buy things. So you have a situation where prices are getting pushed down because of distress, because of the ability to debt, and you have fewer buyers, so demand is down. So we think price is down, and that's a good time to buy. That's our general outlook. Demand, prices are down, demand is down, that's a good opportunity to buy. So what's your next focus, Will? 
we're focusing on distressed assets, loan assumptions, things along those lines. I mean, we are seeing distress. I've now seen probably a dozen properties out on the market that are selling for less than they last sold for in 2021, sometimes even earlier. Uh, some properties are worth less than the debt they have on them. Uh, again, assumption loans are obviously very attractive. They're pretty much the only properties that cash flow right now, but we're actively buying. We're actively buying because again, you know, I think as soon as the lending environment improves, you'll see more people getting into the market. You'll see demand increase and you're going to see prices start to go up. And are you still focused in the Carolinas market or are there other markets that you're looking into as well? Our primary focus remains the Carolinas, but we also look in the surrounding states of Georgia, Tennessee, and Virginia. So, Will, how has real estate investing impacted your life? I mean, it's given me the same things that it's given a lot of other people. You know, it's it's given me the opportunity to work with a lot of new people. I mean, I'm self-employed, so I'm, I'm not exactly passive in this. We head the company, but I enjoy working for myself. I enjoy working with my twin brother. I enjoy working with all of the investors that we work with. It's the asset class that makes the most millionaires out of any asset class. It's it's a great asset class. So I don't have anything transcendental to say. I like being self-employed. I like, well, at the same time, I also think we work full-time for our investors. So it's it's not like a full independence thing for us. And what is the one thing that you know now about real estate that you wish you knew when you first started? Goodness, the one thing I wish... Oh, aluminum wiring is just really, really brutal. <laughs> I mean, one of our recent acquisitions has aluminum wiring and just the the way that the prices on insuring that have gone up has just been awful. And Will, what is the one thing that sets the successful people apart in real estate investing? It's probably patience. I mean, it's not about all the deals you do. It's about the ones you don't do. If you like 50% of the properties you see, you're probably not analyzing them correctly. You know, if you like one-tenth of the properties, if you like one-hundredth of the properties, that, that's going to make a lot more rational sense at the end of the day. So, well, where can our listeners find out more about you and what you're doing? So, the best way to find out more about us is to go to our website, which is mathcap.com, M-A-T-H-C-A-P.com. If you go there, you can see our portfolio, track record, and even schedule a call. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for all of your time today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. If you're anything like Zayla and me and believe that real estate investing is a great way to create passive income and build long-term wealth, check out our free apartment syndication due diligence checklist for passive investors at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Sayla and I created this checklist for ourselves as we evaluated different multifamily syndication opportunities as a passive investor. So we would love to share it with you so you can use it as a resource as well. Download your free copy today at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonavestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.